Welcome back, everyone, uh, to another episode of Talks with Toe. Um, this podcast is brought to you by a broke grad student, as usual. Um, yeah, science and um, freedom of speech. So today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Iggy Trin. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so Dr. Trin and I have known each other for quite a while now, yeah. almost a almost a year. Yeah, but yeah. right. Uh, we went to Vietnam together. Um, Dr. Trin is uh, here at Irvine Clinical Research mm-hmm. and is also on the board of Alzheimer's Orange County. Um, welcome, Dr. Trin. Hey, thanks, Chris. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your story. Um, obviously, how you ended up in medicine and ultimately here at Irvine Region of Orange County. Wow, that's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I came here when I was five, and I was one of the last um, kids who was rescued on an American helicopter uh, during the Vietnam War. The war ended on April 30th, 1975, Mm. and I was just lucky enough to be rescued on April 29th, the day before. Um, I remember just being at the Saigon airport. I remember the shooting and firing and, and mortars and gunshots all around us because I, it was the day before the end, so they were fighting kind of house to house. And I remember being at the airport. Uh, I was the oldest of four kids. Mm-hmm. And so I had uh, my sister was three years old, my other sister was two years old, and my brother was three months old. And mom was with us at the time. Grandma was with us at the time. Dad was still working, um, wasn't around at that time. Um, but uh, it was a gray day. It was uh, in Saigon Airport. And we saw in front of us these large uh, black Chinook helicopters. The Chinook helicopters were like little pickled looking helicopters yeah. with uh, two rotors. Yeah, and so so these large helicopters were just landing on the runway. Uh, the back of the helicopter would come down, and and I just saw a lot of people running in to the helicopter, and the helicopter would take off, and another one would land, and it was super windy because uh, we had no protection against the the rotors, the and it was uh, super loud at the time, just. You know, being 100 feet in front of a helicopter, you know, just kind of landing and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I eventually, a Chinook helicopter landed in front of us. The back would go down, and we were told it was our time to run. And so I grabbed my sister's hand. She's three. I was five. And started running toward the helicopter. Mom had uh, one sister, uh, Hung, in one hand. Uh, and my brother in her other hand who was three months old and we all just ran toward this helicopter which was loud and windy and all that and we approached the back of the helicopter and I remember the um, on the right side was a was an American military guy with uh, his helmet on and had a pistol and there was two rows of seats I remember running in and sitting on the left side um, kind of told to buckled up and and uh, sat down, buckled up. It was crazy times back then with with the war. 
And I just remember that by the time I sat down and buckled up, I felt for the first time, I felt some hope. Um, I just knew that this whole war experience for me, even as a kid, was coming to an end. Um, so it was the first time I felt hope. And, and prior to all that, you know, I kind of grew up like sleeping underneath our beds rather than on top of our beds. Uh, because at night we would look out the window and there was flashes of light from the fighting in the war. And so we were always afraid that the roof would fall down. And um, so a lot of my experience was like sleeping underneath our bed at night. <laughs> and, um, and I remember being interrogated by the Viet Cong, which was the, uh, the guerrillas back then. Uh, that was an interesting experience. Uh, just the fact that my, one of my uncles was a colonel in the South Vietnamese uh, Navy SEALs. They come frogmen back then. But anytime he would come and visit us and then leave, the Viet Cong would come because they have been monitoring for intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. So they would interrogate our whole family. I remember sitting on my bed um, and there was a Viet Cong at the bedside asking me questions about uncle. Like, where'd he come from? Where's he going? I was a five-year-old kid, right? Four or five, I have no clue. But I was scared to death. <laughs> yeah, understandably yeah. so. Oh yeah, I, I, had, I remember those experiences. I remember, um, just running to bomb shelters when the sirens go off. I remember um, at night the Viet Cong would come out on the street and would just go and patrol. They do a lot of patrolling at night. During the day, you had no clue who's a good guy or who's a bad guy. Because during the day, you know, everyone's a farmer or they're working. Uh, you had no clue. And at night, the yeah, the, the guerrillas, the Viet Cong, would take up their arms and go and fight. Mm. It was very interesting. Um, but you can hear them patrol outside uh, your house at night, uh, hear them walk. So we would always, always go huddle at a room or something at night. Um, and, and with those memories, you know, when I sat in that helicopter and buckled up, I was like, wow, I get to leave all this. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, so I remember the helicopter kind of lifting off at the back we go up and as it got higher I saw the the city of Saigon and then as it got even higher I saw the jungles it was all green uh, back in 1975 and then I went over the waters into the ocean I had no clue where we we're going <laughs> it was just going in the ocean uh, flying over the ocean and it finally landed um, on an aircraft carrier called the USS Midway. Yeah, Midway. Are you familiar? Yep, I've been on the Midway. <laughs> so I was on the Midway oh, wow. on uh, April 29th, 1975, as a five-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was on the Midway, and I remember spending all afternoon standing on deck um, with other refugees and just watching the Vietnamese pilots in Vietnamese helicopters escaping the war because they knew it was coming to an end. Uh, so I just watched helicopters land. These Vietnamese helicopters would land on deck. Pilot gets off, their family gets off. And I stood there and watched a bunch of people push these helicopters overboard into the waters because there was no room for Vietnamese helicopters. So one after another, I was just standing there in front of me watching helicopters go overboard 
It was pretty crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, being pushed over. I, I even remember this one large helicopter. I guess it was too large to land or something. They weren't allowed to land. And it, it was only maybe about two, three hundred feet away from the aircraft carrier. And I remembered this large helicopter hovering over the water. And then I saw the pilot like jumped out of it. Wow. And started swimming toward us um, to escape. And I, I stood there and watched this helicopter just hovering and then crashing into the water and then sinking. That was an interesting experience uh, back then as a kid. Um, and then that evening, that evening, they put all the refugees onto a, a World War II landing craft. One of those amphibious assault land, the private Ryan landing craft. Yeah, the ones from D-Day. Yeah, D-Day. Yeah, I remember being there, right? And uh, with all the other refugees, we were we were like squeezed in like sardines, and left the midway in that uh, in that uh, assault uh, ship, and we're just bobbing up and down the water, had no clue where we're going, right? And uh, eventually we. Um, we met up in the middle of the ocean with a transport ship. And uh, I remember having to jump from, from the landing craft to the side of the transport ship and grabbing onto the ropes. Mm. They had these ropes going down the side because it was the only way to get up. Yeah. And I remember doing that. And then we had to wait for like, the waves to be just right for when the transport ship was close to the yeah to uh, our little thing and once the waves kind of pushed both ships together and then we jumped across and i remember climbing up the ropes so your uh, siblings were pretty young then how did they manage to get up those ropes so so babies were being tossed across really mm-hmm. that was the only way because i was one there was folks on one side you know trying to catch babies as they were being tossed across so your siblings were some of those babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother was three months old, right? And so the only way was they were tossing babies across and people were catching them on the other side. Wow, that's, um, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that was a crazy day. Um, we did that. And then I remember we, we slept on top of the deck of this transport ship. What It seems like days, it seems like days to weeks maybe. Um, we just slept on deck and... And uh, every day, the, the best meal of the day was a, um, a plastic Ziploc bag with hot rice and tuna. That was like the best meal of the day because that's mm. when we had hot food, right? Yeah. Um, there was probably canned tuna. I had no clue where it got from. <laughs> but it was my favorite meal of the day. And so what happened was we landed. Um, the transport ship dropped us off uh, on the island of Guam. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I yeah, I, I have heard of Guam. Yeah, yeah, so so we lived on Guam. We lived in these uh, these half dome military bunks um, that the soldiers lived in, and and we weren't allowed to enter the U.S. unless we had a sponsor. And you know we were refugees. We had no sponsors. Uh, we had no luggage. We just had nothing, right? We just came empty-handed uh, onto the island, and so we had lived on there probably what seems like a few months, um, hanging out on the island of Guam. And one day, we were told we had a sponsor, 
and we had no clue who this was. So one day we were told we had a sponsor, and it turned out to be the church. And so there was a church um, somewhere by Seal Beach, and uh, the folks inside the church um, were our sponsors. So we were super grateful. It was my first introduction to God. It's my because I had you know, I grew up Buddhist, right? Mm -hmm. So so I grew up going to Buddhist temple for my education. I was taught by the Buddhist monk. Uh, my uncle's a Buddhist monk. My grandma's a Buddhist nun. Mom's a Buddhist nun still currently. Um, and so my family trees all Buddhists. Mm -hmm. Never knew about church or God or anything like that. So, but it was the church that sponsored us that allowed us to to enter the U.S. And so because we had a sponsor, they uh, put us on a plane, and we flew to uh, currently uh, what was El Toro Air Base. Uh, El right? Right now it's like the Great Park, right? Right, it's the Great Park it's now. It's the Great Park now. But before, it was El Toro Air Base. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember when it was El Toro Air Base where the planes landed and, you know, they had helicopters and all that. It was the Marine Corps Base. Um, so we landed in El Toro Air Base. Uh, we got off the plane. They put us on this black uh, bus and uh, and bust us to uh, Camp Pendleton, uh, which is a Marine base, mm -hmm. Marine Corps base uh, in Oceanside. And if you uh, remember at our tongue out gala, yeah, right, the the colonel who was in charge of creating Tent City, right, he was there speaking. So so we lived in Tent City at Camp Pendleton uh, at the time, and. Um, I remember living in the tents. I remember the the snakes going by, right? Just crawling around right next to our cots. And we slept in there and we stayed in Camp Pendleton for quite some time. Probably for a few months, it seems. And then Dad met up with us at Camp Pendleton. So he kind of escaped on his own and, and made his way over. And, Dang. and we kind of met in Camp Pendleton. So that was a, that was a good reunion. We didn't know that he was there. He didn't know where where we were at. So they had this big billboard in Camp Pendleton of like find the other person. So we we're yeah, putting yeah. down names, right? Looking for Hung Trin or looking for Young, and somehow, yeah, we met up with Dad. That's crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. Just halfway across yeah, just the half, world. Yeah, halfway around the world, we met up with Dad, and um, and we we're so grateful. And so, so from Camp Pendleton, we lived there in the, these tents. We ate chows with the Marines for some time. And then with our sponsor's help, uh, with the church's help, we moved out of Camp Pendleton. We moved to Long Beach. And, um, and we lived in a abandoned YWCA. It, if I remember right, I think it was like four or five stories high. Mm. It was kind of shuttered up. It was just our family and a Filipino family that lived there. And I didn't know if we were even there legally or not. <laughs> I just knew we lived there. You know, I was five years old. And so, so, uh, so dad went to, uh, to pump gas. Yeah, that was his job. Somebody donated a bicycle to us. And so he biked me around all the time and he biked us all around. But he went to pump gas. Uh, Mom stayed home and took four four kids, from five years old to you know several months old. Uh, my brother. 
and and that was kind of our start um, from there because I was five I didn't know any English um, obviously but uh, from there I started kindergarten in Long Beach oh, that's and uh, knew no English and that was um, yeah that was kind of how we got started as Vietnamese refugees um, eventually we moved to Santa Ana lived in a two-bedroom apartment uh, all four of us all six of us actually four kids two parents and we've always been in two bedroom apartments um, and homes until uh, until I graduate from med school mm. um, and uh, but throughout uh, grew up in Santa Ana elementary school junior high school. I I got into medicine back then uh, Santa Ana, the school we went to, wasn't the, the highest academically scored school. Mm. As a matter of fact, uh, it was the lowest in Santa Ana, right? And, and because we, I came from a school that had really poor academic scores and minorities, um, there was a program there where, um, where it was a mentorship program mm. where folks in the community volunteer to be mentors a huller disadvantage economically and so and that, that was me right so I signed up and saying I would love to have right yeah and so my mentor was a physician oh wow yeah yeah his name was Rex Ailing Dr. Rex Ailing he was a pediatrician um, and he was also at the time the uh, the uh, Orange County um, public health medical director mm. yeah, for the me entire county for the entire county and uh, and so he just happened to ma you know I I ex had expressed some interest in maybe health or medicine as a career and so they matched me up with him and through Dr. Rex Ailing's uh, mentorship uh, what that meant was every few months we just had a meal right <laughs> and, and we yeah. talked about what I was doing we talked about what he was doing and then, then he was taking me to his meetings. Wow. Like some of his meetings, you know, I, I was coming, I was tagging along as this high school kid. People were like looking, who's this kid, right? <laughs> Hanging out with Dr. Ailing. And, uh, and then I started volunteering at uh, one of the local hospitals. I volunteered in the ER. I went through this ROP program for a summer and became a, uh, got my medical assistant certification as a medical assistant. Uh, I think I was like 16 years old at the time and became a volunteer at the hospital um, in Garden Grove just took vital signs right blood pressure yeah, stuff yeah. like that and uh, and and loved medicine as a result of that um, and chose uh, yeah chose that as a, a career uh, right after high school I graduated high school on a Friday and that Sunday I was in Marine Corps boot camp <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, so what was that decision to join the Marine Corps? Where did where did that come from? It just came from just really being appreciative of the veterans. Um because if it were not for our veterans, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Right? Mm. And I just had that appreciation for and respect for the military and for our veterans and I decided I wanted to be a Marine. And so uh, I was in boot camp. Yeah for three months right after high school <laughs> down at MCRD which is down in San Diego yeah, yeah. recruit depot and, and did that um, joined the Marine Reserves 
did uh, did the Marine Reserves for the entire five years at UC Irvine when okay. I was an uh, undergrad there. Wow. And, uh, do, do they still have that program at UC Irvine? Do you know? For uh, the, the Reserves? Yeah. You can join the Reserves without being at UC Irvine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that program's around. And as a matter of fact, uh, that was what kind of paid my way through UC Irvine. Mm. Um, so the on the weekend I would be running around with an M16, <laughs> and uh, and during school I would just you know study at UCI. Uh, back then, um, yeah, and it was at UCI when it kind of solidified my interest in medicine. Took all the bio courses, and I actually came in as a physics major. Really, I did. I did. <laughs> well, you do need to know physics, right? Yeah, medicine, yeah, so. I did. I came in as a physics major. And uh, and enjoyed all that, kind of bounced around a little bit, but um, but yeah, from there I I w- went to New York Med Medical School, and um, it's funny I um, my Christian faith developed during UC Irvine mm. with uh, InterVarsity. Oh yeah, InterVarsity. Yeah. yeah, I was with InterVarsity small group Bible studies. Went to uh, this Urbana missions conference. Uh, yep, I hear all about that. I've never been. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. We uh, interesting story with Urbana. I um, had wanted to go, um, didn't have the funds to go. Uh, it was in uh, Champaign, Illinois. For didn't have the funds to go, and um, I think it was like three hundred forty bucks to uh, to get there for the event um and and that included transportation costs i uh, it wasn't a plane we were dirt broke we took the greyhound wow what is that must be like what What it was uh, whatever it was we took the greyhound but uh but i didn't have money we prayed about it in small group uh and things of that sort so i was studying the library just hanging out in the library studying uh, took breaks, walked away from my books, walked away from my cubicles, came back one day from one of my breaks and there was an envelope with just cash in it. So, and I had no clue who donated it, but it was just enough for Urbana. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That's it was a... like just enough for Urbana and I had no clue. It was, there was a statement saying this is from Jesus or whatever. Yeah, but, uh, but that paid for my way to Urbana. So yeah, hop the Greyhound bus and bust it overnight, <laughs> overnight bust it to Urbana and uh, participated. It was a, a missions organization, right? Mm-hmm. A bunch of missionaries came and, but it was a life changing event um, because I've since Urbana I've always thought about missions work. Yeah. Right. As a matter of fact, when I was in med school, um, I was also I was also a student at Calvary Chapel Bible College. Really? At the same time in med school? Yeah, correspondent courses. Wow. Yeah, correspondence courses. And um, and between second and third year of med school, I was taking a, a course on, um, it was uh, the Book of Romans, about grace. Right? Mm. Talking about, it was all about God's grace and all that. I was uh, really involved with church back in New York during med school. I was uh, leading the youth groups. Uh, doing Friday night Bible studies, conducting Bible studies for for the youth groups and all that. Um, 
that during second and third year of med school, during that, that summer, I was really this close to dropping out of med school to finish Bible college. Yeah, to, really? to go into full-time ministry. Uh, super close to it. Uh, because I was really enjoying what I was doing uh, with the church at the time. And it was fulfilling, right? Uh, just serving. Um, until I realized I was already $80,000 in debt. <laughs> yeah, that's a, probably a little bit of an eye-opener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was 40000 a year for med school, right? Loans. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I don't think ministry is going to pay for this. I'm going to finish med school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I finished med school. <laughs> yeah. So I finished med school and then came home to Loma Linda. Okay. And did residency. Uh, in internal medicine and uh, and then did some uh, acupuncture certification at UCLA and, and did some acupuncture work as a, and uh, yeah and then just went to Orange County to, to practice medicine nice um, but uh, but yeah. because my heart has always been in missions it's why you know why I started Tongue Out yeah so I guess we can talk about that a little bit um, yeah. I've had the privilege of experiencing Vietnam with you Um, and um, obviously Vietnam is dear and close to your heart uh, but at what point did you come to that decision you know I'm gonna start this and get other people involved and just uh, go back to um, Vietnam and give back right so when Hurricane Katrina hit I don't know if you remember Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, I, I do. It was... 2004, 2005. Yeah, it was all over the news. Yeah. yeah it, was. it was out in... Was it uh, Mississippi, mm-hmm. right? When yeah. the dams went down and, yeah. and all that. Um, I was practicing medicine... I've been in practice for probably three years, right? Just fresh grad. When Hurricane Katrina hit, I basically uh, decided I want to do something. So... So I sent an email to a medical group, mm. and we recruited three other people to go. And we went out there, and we just volunteered, uh, provided medical care. Um, it was such an impactful event uh, just to watch folks who have lost everything from the floods, folks who are now living in tents yeah. or living in shelters and who have literally lost everything. It's such an impactful event for me that... Uh, I actually flew home, and then three months later, I flew back, and and this time I brought along forty boxes of donations. Wow! Yeah, from our medical group, we um, it was Bristol Park Medical Group at the time, and and all the different offices were just chipping in donations. So we shipped forty boxes of medical supplies and clothes and toys and shoes uh, over to Hurricane Katrina area, yeah. and then I flew back again. And and since then, I have done uh, medical missions work in Juarez, Mexico. Kind of like, I don't know, gangbanger land with uh, the drugs and cartels and all that. We, we took teams out yeah. there. And we took a few. I even took my kids out when they were, I don't know. Jonathan, <laughs> back in 2007, was maybe nine years old. Lizzie okay. was like four years old. Yeah. Five years old. I just took the entire family and we did medical missions work there. Uh, I went back to Vietnam for the first time in 2010. Mm. 
and what was that experience like? What were it kind of it emotions? Was, uh, yeah, it was emotional. I went back to the home where I lived, and um, and the home was subdivided now. It was the uh, and um, and the other people living there went back and visited uh, some family, um, but uh, from 1975 all the way to 2010, that was my first time back. Wow. It was crazy. I went back with my family. We didn't do missions work. We were just back to visit family. Mm -hmm. And um, took the family back, took dad back, um, kind of toured around. And and I saw the needs there. I saw the needs there. And so in 2013, um, I came back and started doing medical missions. Um, Originally, it was with uh, what well, you met, Jerry Husan, right? Yeah, yeah, Jerry. Yeah, Seven Day Hero. Great so guy. I, yeah, <laughs> great guy. So, so, 2013, I came back with Jerry with Seven Day Hero. And um, we, it was just pop up clinics, uh, nothing planned. And then in 2014, I went back like three times to Vietnam because mm. the need was so great. I just kept going back. And in 2014 was when I started Tongue Out. Yeah, and I realized that that uh, we need to make more of an impact. So I just got organized. Yeah. And and founded Tongue Out. Uh, founded it's a 501c3 nonprofit. And and we just and f folks were seeing what I was doing on Facebook. Yeah, right? it's all on the internet. It's all on the internet. 100%. We don't have an office. We don't have. Uh, yeah, we don't have any real structure. We're just an organization that's on the cloud. That's all we are. So we have chat groups for Vietnam. We have chat groups for Haiti, chat groups for Peru, chat groups for every country. So we organize on the cloud, 100%. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeps costs down, right? <laughs> Let me check it out. Um, yeah. Um, might be having some technical difficulties. <laughs> I should say that uh, this laptop is uh, 2012. Nice! Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so I, I remember because yeah. uh, I was in high school right. and my dad was like, well, you know, you're going to get to college and by the time you get to college, you're going to yeah. need a laptop. Yeah. So yeah. he got me this laptop and I've somehow kept it alive all, yeah. <laughs> all these years. Oh, I love it. Yeah, because you know, I also grew up in a kind of an environment where you don't waste anything, right? Yeah. Like so, if if it's not broken, you don't you don't. Throw I it love away. it. I love it. Yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, we started Tongue Out in 2014. Um, this year alone, we're what 2019 now. Yeah, 2019. So wow. so this year in March, uh, we were in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, eye surgeries for the blind, leprosy work. Yeah. Uh, medical clinics. Yeah, we bought wheelchairs too. Right? Yeah, wheelchairs. Uh, we hit probably four or five orphanages. Uh, this year in March, we also, um, I don't know, March or July, I keep losing now. All the trips overlap. But we, uh, yeah, we did, what else did we do? We did a well. We did a well. Yeah, we yeah. did a well in UC Irvine's name. So that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, we did a well. Uh, so that was March. And then in May, we were in Haiti. Uh, in Haiti, we do pop-up uh, medical clinics to the community. Mm -hmm. The Haiti medical clinic is quite different than Vietnam. Yeah. Haiti medical clinic, four to five hundred patients a day. Yeah. It's yeah. typical. It's what we do there. I've I've been to Haiti myself. Right. Um, 
back 2017. Yeah. So, yeah, we were in Shambrun, which is just outside of Port-au-Prince. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's like... The needs. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Know? It's still crazy. Yeah. Yeah, even... Yeah, it's... um. There's still no running water. Mm-hmm. In right? most places. In yeah. most places, there's nothing in the ground. There's no... There's not even electricity in a lot of places. A lot of places, there's yeah. no electricity. That's right. So we were in Haiti in uh, in May, and then uh, I came back to Vietnam in July. Uh, took another team. July's team was so large, we broke it down to team one, team two. We had over 50 people. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah, it's pretty crazy. Team one, team two. I was in team one, and um, and we uh, we brought a commercial water filter, a large water filter. We actually shipped it over. Um, one of our partners here had worked in uh, the water district and really smart guy, his name's Mr. Yim, and he has, a, he has patents on water. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. And so he designed a commercial water system that uh, doesn't require a lot of maintenance at all. Um, so he, we built it here, the components. We shipped it to Vietnam. We put it together in Vietnam and we brought it up the mountains and um, it was pretty large but it's able to provide drink water for 1500 people a day uh, which is uh, pretty huge so a lot of water not just for the elementary school where we placed it right. but for the entire community mm-hmm. and uh, so that was uh, all the, the typical projects we did and then um, and then we just got back from Peru yeah, Peru was a wheelchair assembly and distribution mm-hmm. at multiple locations. We partnered with Free Wheelchair Mission, yeah, which is yeah. another nonprofit. Yeah, there's actually a lot of, uh, there was a senior design project mm-hmm. at UC Irvine last year that was working with Free Wheelchair Mission. No way, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's our partner in, um, mm. in Peru and uh, built a whole bunch of wheelchairs, distributed and uh, shared God's love and then did some orphanage work. Um, so, what are some of the differences in, I guess, needs in Peru compared to Vietnam? Uh, yes, Peru. Um, Peru, you will find kids uh, climbing trash heaps. Mm. Um, so, we had done some medical clinics uh, right next to these areas that just were just big, large, giant trash heaps. Uh, Peru's plumbing, big issue. I love uh, that. Oh. I'm sorry, I didn't it's know okay. recording and <laughs> yeah. here, Dr. No Dr. wanted me to bring the box down for you. Okay. <laughs> and so then, no uh, worries. That's okay. okay. No problem. That's what post editing is for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. And then, um, and then with uh, Peru, we did, uh, we've done a lot of work in the Amazon. Mm. So, so we see a lot of jungle medicine. We see a lot of jungle-related medicine from the lack of health care there, from uh, infections, uh, stings and bites, uh, poor water quality, because yeah. uh, there's no wells or anything in, in the jungle area. Uh, so we do a lot of work in that area as well. Uh, next month, um, yeah, next month, November, we're taking a team to Oaxaca, Mexico. Mm. Yeah, so we'll be working with... Uh, the farmers in the highlands of the Mexico, Oaxaca area, and uh, do some work there. I think they have a week-long uh, pastors' conference. Thousands of people converge in to this. In Hawaii? Con- 
yeah oh wow yeah okay. in uh this community and and so we hope to do some work there uh next month that's exciting and then that's and then that that ends the year for <laughs> tongue out yeah it's been a busy year for tongue out <laughs> yeah and then it all starts up again <laughs> i know right? yeah, we already we already filled up our trip uh for haiti in february next year that's great yeah most of our trips we never advertise mm -hmm. uh because it's all internal uh, part of the tongue out's problem is is trying to trying to control growth a lot of people want to be involved but we're all volunteers yeah and um and and most of our trips are 90 percent tongue out veterans who have been on prior trips they just keep signing up for the next one yeah and so once in a while we'll try to squeeze in someone new <laughs> right, right. yeah yeah but um but next year obviously we have um you know we use Irvine in March mm -hmm. and um and then we have another trip for Vietnam in June we're doing cleft lip surgery oh yeah mm -hmm. that's uh, being set up right now in June mm -hmm. we just met up with the hospitals over there and then uh July we are toying around with the idea of India really okay yeah 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 for a week in India we have some partners over there yeah so so we may pull the trigger on that if you're interested <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll see i i mean yeah i'm always open to <laughs> right right uh doing missions and stuff and it's yeah it's always a great experience i i get constantly trying yeah. to get my friends to <laughs> yeah right go with go with us at some point but right yeah. it's just um yeah I, we love taking students along mm -hmm. um sometimes well most of our most of our trips are like half students 50% students is pretty normal yeah. for tongue out. Uh, usually it's high schoolers from like youth groups and different places. Mm -hmm. But uh, sometimes we wonder if tongue out is a medical organization that takes students or if tongue out is a youth group yeah. that takes doctors and nurses. <laughs> sometimes it can be confusing. Yeah. Yeah, because it looks like a youth group with a yeah. number of uh, students coming along. Yeah, so it's one or the other. <laughs> but nice. uh, but yeah, that's next year. That's what we have kind of going on right now. That's exciting. We're also looking at maybe Africa as well, if we can pull it off. Africa? Yeah. Mm -hmm. hey, you guys were talking about Chad, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember you guys mentioning that. Yes, Chad is on the radar for possibly next year. Um, just got to find out some uh, some dates. Mm -hmm. And the thing with Chad is probably the, uh, the airfare costs. A little yeah. bit higher than other countries. So yeah, airfare is usually the limiting the limiting factor. factor. <laughs> yeah, it's the limiting always factor. the limiting factor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Although I will say that we are lucky because I remember when I went back to China the first time. Right. That's probably back in two thousand. Yeah. But the airfare back then was very expensive. Really. It was. Honestly, round trip was around three thousand. Ooh. Yeah, because there just weren't as many planes in mm -hmm. the world in yeah. general back then. So, but nowadays you can find yeah flights to any part of Asia for around like six hundred, seven hundred, depending on the country. Yeah, eight hundred maybe for right. China because that's a little bit more heavy travel. Yeah, area. depends on the time of the year yeah. and, the, and the country and all right. that. So, but that's definitely so prices limit. have definitely dropped. It's still a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, I remember it was incredibly expensive right 
right yeah, yeah. that's no normally the limiting factor we we help our students out mainly because we we have them just create gofundme pages mm-hmm. right i have a gofundme page right now from one of our students on my facebook and mm-hmm. we just kind of share it and then folks who yeah yeah folks would donate yeah, a, lot, a lot of like word of mouth stuff right? yeah yeah all word of mouth so i wanted to ask you also about um your work here at Mm-hmm. Uh, Irvine Clinical Research. Um, what's that about? You're very big in, mm-hmm. you know, educating the community. Um, yeah. So what do you do for that? Yeah. I um, So prior to Irvine Clinical Research, I was the uh, medical director for Memorial Care. Mm. Um, at one of their facilities, I've, I've been on the board and in the leadership part. And just, I had a full-time practice um, with probably at least 2,000 patients. Wow. And, that's uh, a very full practice. <laughs> yes, very full practice. And um, and during you know during the years where I was practicing full time uh, clinical medicine, outpatient medicine, I was really successful in lowering heart disease, lowering stroke, catching cancers early. I was sending people out for mammograms and colonoscopies and Pap smears and other preventive health stuff. We were doing really good and, and getting good outcomes. The only thing that I had no success over was that every time I made the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, it was a one-way road. Mm. There's no cure. There's no medications that work. Yeah. There's nothing. And, and I saw it in my own patients. Right, and these were patients who have been with me for like fifteen years. Yeah, where fifteen years ago they were healthy, they drove in, had great conversations, chatting, and all that. And then I saw the slow changes over time, and and made the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and I saw them progress till they died, and um, and then I ended up writing their death certificates, signing their death certificates, and. It's an epidemic. Alzheimer's in Orange County is the number three cause of death, right behind heart attacks, which is number one. Cancer is number two. Mm-hmm. Alzheimer's is number three. We have no cure. Um, so, in 2007, or even earlier, I was out of the country six times a year with tongue out. Mm-hmm. And I was out of the country six times a year while running a full-time medical practice while being the medical director. Right. And it was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a lot in your Yeah, right? And uh, and every time I was out of the country, I felt super, super guilty because mm. my patients were waiting for me to come back. My doctors were waiting for me to come back. They had to cover my practice every time I was out, right? And my staff was waiting for me to come back, and I was out so often doing missions work. Mm-hmm. that I decided in 2017 to step down from my full-time practice and kind of retire from clinical medicine mm. to focus on missions work. Um, but along with that, I wanted to see if I can make a dent in Alzheimer's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I, I moved, kind of shifted over to Irvine Clinical Research. I'm the chief medical officer for the organization, and I'm also on the board for Alzheimer's Orange County. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of help in the leadership position to kind of guide uh, with that. And my role, my hope now is that through clinical research, we can find you know, that next treatment that actually works. Mm-hmm. 
or, or we can find a cure mm -hmm. or we can do something about prevention and so I've I wanted to focus that this you know this current part of my life to I'm trying to make a dent for uh, in Alzheimer's yeah and we do that with clinical research and we do that with education mm -hmm. the education piece I'm out in the community lecturing I uh, got 200 lectures this year <laughs> yeah, you're on doing, my schedule. Huh? You're doing one at UCR by next week, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, I just got a request for another talk at UCI at the University Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a new building, too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, asked, I was asked to come out there and do another talk, but i uh, got to find a date. But anyway, um, yeah, education is so important because although there's no cure for Alzheimer's, there are things you can do to minimize your risk. Mm -hmm. And there's published data that shows, you know, with exercise, you can minimize your risk between 30 to 50%. Yeah, that's, a significant that's huge, yeah. right? With simply exercise. And the word is not getting out. Folks mm -hmm. don't know what they can do, right, to minimize their risk. Yeah, I guess for our listeners who might not even know really what Alzheimer's actually is, like, I think a lot of people hear the word Alzheimer's, but yeah. they don't really know what. Yeah, it's the disease actually does. So, so the word dementia, mm -hmm. right? The word dementia means memory loss. It's a big umbrella, right? That has a bunch of conditions under it. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's take up two thirds of that umbrella. Wow. Yeah. So, so two out of three patients with dementia have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. It's progressive memory loss, uh, not just memory loss, but this personality changes. Mm. that goes along with that there's changes in the ability to do complex tasks like balancing the budget writing a checkbook driving mm. right you lose all those capabilities your personality changes and then and then you start to forget everything mm. in the beginning it's just small little memory losses like forgetting a name forgetting a word right mm. to room and wondering why you're there just small little things but what happens is that over time, uh, it progresses, uh, where short-term memory gets eaten up uh, chronologically, and and there's a plaque that builds in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. Uh, we call it beta amyloid. Yeah, beta amyloid. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And that builds up many causes of beta amyloid production. Uh, there's over 30 causes actually of amyloid production. And, uh, and maybe that's why it's an epidemic. Right? You got so many things coming at you in addition to your genes. Right, yeah. There's, there's a number of genes that, uh, that promotes Alzheimer's. Another gene is APOE4. And, uh, and if you had you know, one copy from one parent, mm -hmm. your Alzheimer's risk is 25%. If you have two wow. copies, Right, if you're that's heterozygous, if you have two copies, which is homozygous from both parents, that risk doubles to 50%. Um, so, yeah, and the scary thing is this the scary thing is that one out of four Americans are walking around with this gene. That's the current statistics. 25% of our population has the Alzheimer's gene, mm. and maybe that contributes to this epidemic as right. well, right? Mm. But genetics isn't everything, right? Lifestyle plays a huge role. Lifestyle plays a bigger role than the genes. What we eat, what we don't eat, whether we exercise or not, how much sleep we get, mm -hmm. whether we socialize or not, and, and the other medical conditions 
that we also have. Blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, you know, all these other medical conditions actually increase the risk for Alzheimer's as well. So there's multifactorial risk factors, but there's a lot of things that we can do with our lifestyle to minimize our risk. So, which is why I'm big uh, when I go out and give these lectures. I'm talking about prevention. I'm talking about things you can do to minimize your risk, mm -hmm. right? And that's that's really my goal. And we can bring preventive type lifestyles and apply it early in our lives. Mm -hmm then there's less worry about it later on. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a lot of research, especially on the genetic side, mm -hmm. which is kind of where I work, right. of how, yes, there are a lot of genes that <clears throat> we inherit, right. but there's a growing amount of evidence showing that, you know, our lifestyle might actually affect which genes get turned on or off. That's right. Um, you know, um, which right. genes might start interacting with each other, which is a... Yes huge unknown area right. in our research right now um yeah just figuring out like okay like how do multiple genes interact interact together to maybe increase your risk or maybe decrease your risk and yeah i think that's a very important area so. it's huge it's a huge area that we need to, to learn more about mm -hmm. so i definitely appreciate what you do in that area <laughs> yeah we i was actually talking to my professor yeah about you know maybe we can use some of what we've learned in our cancer research to yeah. hopefully at least improve the information that right. um, patients get about their risk, you know? Right. Because we do know there's some obvious risk factors, like yeah. you mentioned, like the single gene, but right. uh, we've kind of shown that like for things like cancer also, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It is. Those risk numbers can actually with the information that we have now to be pretty accurate mm -hmm. so. right cancer is a lot more than genes mm -hmm. because uh, there's a lot of cellular processes involved right right yeah. uh, which is why we've seen data that the ketogenic diet right has an effect on cancer when you starve the cancer sure. right right there's a mm -hmm. lot of data on that especially brain tumors and um, uh, different types of tumors that certain diets actually help slow down mm -hmm. Uh, cancer growth and things of that sort. Uh, the process of autophagy, right? Autophagy is when the body kind of cleans itself out. Yeah, it kills right? like the, I guess the bad cells. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Autophagy is like, uh, it's like the trash truck dropping by once a week to pick up trash. Yeah. Right. When when autophagy works in our body, the trash truck in our body picks up the trash. It takes away old cells, damaged cells, damaged DNAs. Right, damaged cellular uh, stuff is eaten yeah, up by autophagy. Yeah. yeah, right. Autophagy cleans it up, um, and there's a there's a direct connection between how well autophagy works and cancer as well. Uh, when autophagy works well, your cancer risk is lower because it's cleaning out stuff, and when autophagy doesn't work well, then you're in trouble, right? Yeah. Uh, also, big connection with inflammation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, inflammation is a huge one. Yeah, huge row, huge row. I've been doing a lot of lectures on inflammation and and how it's connected with cancer survival, uh, how it's connected with chronic diseases. Just about most diseases in our body is one way or, or another linked to inflammation, mm -hmm. including Alzheimer's. And most people don't realize it, but inflammation doesn't just come from an infection or an injury, right? Inflammation 
comes from our diet. Mm. There are foods that are pro-inflammatory. Okay, so where are some of those foods that... <laughs> it's called the American diet. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> right? Red meat is pro-inflammatory. Mm. And the reason red meat is pro-inflammatory is because the cow that we eat, right? The steak that we eat, if you're like me, where you like medium rare steak, mm -hmm. right? Right? We're not when we're eating a medium rare steak, we're not just eating a steak. We're eating what the cow ate. Right. right? How do you know that the grass that the cow ate wasn't sprayed? Right? It doesn't tell you on the label, does it? Right. Because how do you track that? <laughs> how do you track that, right? How do you know it wasn't sprayed with pesticides, herbicides, insecticides? How do you know that the cow wasn't pumped up with hormones? We pumped a lot of our cows up with hormones over their life because they grow faster, they get fatter, and we sell the cows by the pound, more profits, right? So when you're eating this medium rare steak, it's not just a steak you're eating. Mm -hmm. You're eating hormones, right? You're eating pesticides, herbicides. Um, we pumped a lot of our animals up with antibiotics because who wants a cow to get sick and die, right? So yeah. throughout the life of our cow, you know, we're pumping up with antibiotics to keep them healthy. So when you're eating this medium rare steak, right, you got antibiotics on board, you got hormones on board, you got pesticides on board, you know, chemicals on board, which is why steaks on the bad list. Because when you're digesting this steak, into the bloodstream is floating antibiotics, hormones, pesticides, and all that. What does the immune system do when it sees all this? It tries to attack it. It attacks yeah. it, right? <laughs> yep. And in the process of an immune system attack on things it doesn't like, what is created? An inflammatory response. Inflammation. Yep. Inflammation created, right? Yeah. And it's just a one-time meal, no big deal, right? You mm -hmm. create a little flare of inflammation, it goes away. But the problem is the American diet is... Very heavily in these... Heavy, yeah. Very heavily. So, so what we have created, and sugar is a big culprit, Sugar yeah. is very pro-inflammatory. Uh, fried foods is pro-inflammatory. Fast foods, um, and so so really, I'm talking about the American diet. The American diet is a pro-inflammatory diet. Inflammation is linked to chronic diseases, including Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So I go, I give these lectures about that to, to bring some awareness on certain foods you can eat that will be anti-inflammatory to cool down inflammation and avoid the stuff that causes inflammation that's prevention right right prevention of chronic diseases including alzheimer's not what i do <laughs> yeah nice. yeah yeah that's great <laughs> well i want to respect your time yeah um, we've had a pretty great discussion um is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners um maybe how they can support uh tongue out how uh, they can at least get educated on yeah. ways to change their lifestyle Sure, sure. If anyone's interested in supporting uh, our missions work, uh, you can just go to our website. It's tongueout.org. It's all one word. Okay. Um, if they're interested in going to one of my lectures uh, on Facebook, they can go to the, uh, it's called the Healthy Brain Club. Healthy Brain Club. And that's us. And under Healthy Brain Club, um, just go to the event section and all my lectures are there. They're open to the public. Uh, at least the public lectures are there. Great. Uh, with that. Yeah. And then uh, anytime you want to learn about one specific topic, uh, just let me know. I'll come back and talk.
Yeah, and maybe uh, if you start up that podcast, we'll be sure to share that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Very cool. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Chen. Thanks so much. Yeah. That was fun. (laughs) Thanks for tuning into this podcast. Be sure to head over to iTunes. Give us that five-star rating. You can also find us on Spotify and Google Play. Talks with Toe is written and produced by Chris Toe. Dr. Young Chen is the Chief Medical Officer for Irvine Clinical Research and sits on the board for Orange County Alzheimer's. To find out more about his work and to support Tongue Out, head out to tongueout.org. Additionally, you can find him on Facebook at Tongue Out Medical Team and the Healthy Brain Club. Music is by Purple Planet. You can visit their website at purple-planet.com.